This past week, on behalf of Church of the Palms, I reached out to our sister congregation, Light of the World Church, via their pastor, Kelvin Lumpkin, to express our sadness and outrage over the murders of 10 African-American people in Buffalo. As we all know, it's understood that these shootings were racially motivated and fueled by racist conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories kill people. Conspiracy theories profile people, they dehumanize people, they kill people. Each of the 10 was a human being with a name and a story and with the image of God imprinted within them. Robert Drury, Margus Morrison, Andre McNeil, Aaron Salter, Geraldine Talley, Celestine Cheney, Hayward Patterson, Catherine Massey, Pearl Young, Ruth Whitfield. Far too quickly, events like this turn into political theater that then turns into naming and blaming and into more conspiracy theories and then more killing, not to mention unjust legislation and bias. Followers of Jesus have no business with these theories. Followers of Jesus have just one theory, to love one another. And with that comes grace and mercy and hearts soft enough that break. We weep with those who weep, we grieve with those who grieve, and we stand up for those who are being put to the ground. And we must leave no doubt that our greatest concern is the justice given to and the well-being of all people. And if you have any other theory, it's probably wrong. The only thing that's right is for us to love our neighbor enough for our hearts to break when any neighbor or any group of neighbors is deemed unworthy of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you wonder why we talk about race here and racial justice, this is why. We must doggedly seek justice and equity for all as the only antidote to madmen. And here's a place to start. Seek out a person of color in your life and tell them about your broken heart and ask them about theirs. And if you have no person of color in your life, then figure out why that is and do something about it. Speaking of broken hearts, Jesus' mission was to share his broken heart with those whose hearts themselves were broken by life and prejudice and great misfortune. And two such people are found in our lessons today. So let's listen to the word of God. First from John 4, verse 7 through 26. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And his disciples had gone to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews did not share things in common with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket. The well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. 
And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. From John 5, now in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew Bethsaida, which has five porticos. In these lay many ill, blind, lame, and paralyzed people. And one man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? And the ill man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when this water is stirred up, and while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, Stand up, take up your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name, amen. The Summer Day, a poem by Mary Oliver that you will find on page eight of your bulletin. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? 
It's an interesting human question, and it is a question that many feel has its place strictly at the beginning of life. You know, sometime right about now in the spring when students are graduating from whatever level of education they've attained. Last week I participated in my alma mater's commencement. I serve as a trustee there and got to listen to at least four commencement speeches telling the students what they should do with their one wild and precious life. It's a question and answer we assume is reserved for the starting gate and not for the backstretch and certainly not for the final turn. What is, it, what, is, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? A question, interestingly enough, penned by a woman, Mary Oliver, who when she wrote the poem was 55 years old and in the poem she describes not the achievement of some life plan or goal or the arrival to some sort of destiny but to a moment in her life when she chose to simply experience the wild and precious gift of life itself. A moment, shall we say, of quiet sanity, a moment of wellness. This Mary Oliver, whose life had not been a bed of roses, whose childhood had been filled with pain and abuse, whose lifestyle had often been seen as suspect. She describes a moment in which she permitted herself loveliness, beauty, and grace. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? A human question that if we are brave enough, we will ask at no matter what stage and chapter of life in which we find ourselves. So with that question in mind, I want to turn to these two stories that I just read from John's Gospel. One of the many wonderful ways that John tells the story of Jesus is that he invites us to watch and listen to brief encounters that Jesus has with people like you and me. Ordinary people with, you know, ordinary lives, just trying to get by with the cars they've been dealt, traveling with the baggage they packed or that's been packed for them. A list of people which includes brother fishermen, Peter and Andrew, Nathaniel the skeptic, Nicodemus the religious leader, a man born blind, a woman caught in adultery, two sisters mourning the death of their brother. Our lessons today contain two such encounters. First, Jesus talking to a woman from Samaria who has been married five times, and second, Jesus talking to a man who has been able, unable to walk for 38 years. Now, when you read John's Gospel, you find that when he tells a story, he's apt to include details that nobody necessarily would think of. And often those details are numbers. For example, when the disciples were out fishing and Jesus directs them from the shore to cast their nets to the other side of the boat and they catch this huge school of fish, John goes as far as to tell us exactly how many fish were caught. Not a lot of fish, not a whole lot of fish, but 153 fish they caught, which makes us wonder, why does he give us that number? Why does he give us that detail? Why do we need to know precisely 153? So in our stories today, John tells us that the woman at the well has been married not many times, but five times. And the man that had been sick had been sick for 38 years. And it got me to thinking about these numbers that had been attached to these people, these numbers that had become perhaps significant for them. Married five times, sick 38 years. And it got me to thinking about what those numbers had been for these people, how those numbers perhaps identified them, shaped them, defined them, informed their futures. Numbers can do that to you sometimes. I was talking to an elderly woman not too long ago who within 30 seconds of beginning the conversation, she told me not how old she was, but how old she was going to be. 
I'm going to be 97, she said. Wonderful, I said. When do you turn 97? And she gave me a date seven months in advance. 97 was a significant enough number that she actually fast-forwarded to it. That said something about her. I have a friend who every time I see him gives me a number. That's all he does. He just gives me a number because he knows that I know what that number is. It's the number of years since he's taken a drink. 27, he'll say, and I'll give him a big hug of celebration. I know another man who, when telling his story, will usually mention somewhere along the way his draft number. Random number, low number, unlucky number. It determined the fate of his life for the year ahead. It put him in Vietnam and it established the trajectory of his life. For bad, for good, for some, the number is at the bottom of their bank account. For some, it's the number of their anniversary. For some, it's the number of years they've been in remission. For some, it's the amount of years that have passed since they last spoke to one of their children. Many of us have a number that tells us something about us. So the woman at the well has the number five. Somewhere along the way, Jesus has heard about this number, so he brings it up. Five times she's been married. Tradition passes this woman off as a woman who has moved from man to man, which is a misreading of the story, I think. In first century Palestine, women didn't move from man to man. They didn't have that agency. They didn't have that control. Men owned women. They kept women until they didn't want the women anymore. They discarded them. The women had been a cast-off. She had been a victim of unfaithfulness. That's the number perhaps she's carrying around. It's the number that's been heard around town. It may be explained why she was alone at the well. So in the next story, the number for the man beside the pool was 38. 38 is a big number. It's a long time. It's a lot of years not to be able to walk. 38 years is a long time to wait in place in line to be laid in that pool where the healing water is. 38 years may get you to think that that's just the way it's going to be. If you can't walk in 38 years, you begin to wonder if you'll ever be able to walk. Some would fault him for hoping otherwise. 38 years, according to the theology, of that day means you must have done something really bad because you get what you deserve. So whether it's 5, 38, or 97, we have these numbers that say something about us, and sometimes they shape us, sometimes they define us, sometimes we allow them to determine our futures, and sometimes they keep us from hearing Jesus' question. To the woman it is, would you like some living water? And to the man it is, do you want to be made well? And if Mary Oliver were doing the asking, it might be, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Sometimes we allow our numbers to disqualify us from entertaining the question. And from Jesus' point of view, it seems the questions all have to do with where are you going from here? Do you want to be made well? Even now, Wherever you are, do you want to be made well, despite the circumstance, despite the prognosis, despite your age, despite your spot on the actuarial table, despite whether people are talking about you behind your back, despite being a cast-off, do you want to be made well? Is there still not time for something to be done with your well and precious life? 
Oh, but Jesus, I've not been able to walk for 38 years. Oh, but Jesus, I've been married and divorced five times. Oh, but Jesus, I'm 97 years old. Oh, but Jesus, I'm in a nursing home. Oh, but Jesus, the prognosis is not good. Oh, but Jesus, I, have a ba- I had a bad childhood. Also very real, very, very real. And yet the invitation still stands. And the invitation points us to the possibility that there is wellness still at hand that the love and grace of the master, the creator, the sustainer has its way of sinking into the pores of our epidermis and our souls and bringing about a peace and contentment and a wellness that transcends the numbers. In 1997, the Pulitzer Prize for Biography was awarded to a retired high school English teacher, a retired high school English teacher who had never before written a book His name was Frank McCourt, and his book was Angela's Ashes, the first book he'd ever written. 66 years old, never written a book before, and this Pulitzer Prize book is just simply a story about his life. Many of you have read it, a story of growing up in Ireland, a very difficult childhood, poverty, the drunkenness of his father, the death of three siblings, the survival of his mother, a compelling story of phoenix and triumph that made it to the top of the bestseller list and later into a movie. And it all began at the age of 66. Shortly after receiving the Pulitzer Prize, Mr. McCord addressed the student body of the high school where he used to teach and said this. He said, when I wrote that book, I learned the significance of my own insignificant life. I learned the significance of my own insignificant life, which may be what Jesus is after when he invites us to wellness, to see the significance of our lives, to believe that no matter at what point we find ourselves, no matter what number we carry, no matter what circumstance we face, there is this wellness of significance to discover, that we are a part of God's amazing, beautiful design. Now, not back then, but now. There is a significance to now. We are here in the beautiful world world for a reason now to become agents of God's love and grace to others now which takes us back to the beginning of each of these stories where each of these stories begins with Jesus initiating Jesus approaching Jesus taking the first step Jesus engaging the man engaging the woman do you want to be made well have you ever wondered how Jesus was contributing to his own wellness by seeking out the wellness of others seeing the significance in what many would have seen as insignificant lives. You know, she's been married five times. You know, he's been sick for 38 years. And Jesus sees two significant lives who have every right to be well. Somebody God never made a nobody person. You are more than a number like the old Yorkshire tombstone epitaph, God give me work till my life shall end and life till my work is done. So the picture on your bulletin is the picture of the office of Albert Einstein the day he died. The desk is covered with papers, books recently read, the blackboard covered with numbers, numbers recently factored. 
all of it his attempt to understand and improve the world. God, give me work till my life shall end and life till my work is done. Whatever the numbers I have, O oh God, help me factor them into something that may change the world into something else. Which explains a friend of mine, I'll call him Bob. I've known Bob since I was a boy. Bob has been living with a degenerative and debilitating disease for, I'm guessing, 30 years. Slowly, by, slowly day by day and year by year, it takes more of his ability away. And maybe 30 is his number, I don't know. Or maybe it's a number that his prognosis includes, I don't know. Or maybe it's his age that he's often doubted he'd get to, I don't know. But what I do know is that despite Bob's number, his mission in life is to be, able to be a blessing now. He seeks me out. He tells me an encouraging word. He prays for me. He does this for countless people. He can't walk, but he can bless. He has seen the significance in what many would have seen as an insignificant life. It is well with his soul. And when he speeds toward me in his powered wheelchair, my day has just gotten better. Do you want to be made well? Do you want the sip of living water? What is it? What is your plan? What is it you plan to do now? What is it you plan to do now with your one wild and precious life.